I'm really happy for you. I'm let you finish. Hello and welcome to On In 5. I'm Anton Ryder. I'm joined by two of my best friends in the whole wide world. We've got Ethan Bonin over there. Ethan, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great tonight. I'm having a good that's night. That's good. I'm good. I'm glad to hear. Anything change in your life that's really, really good? I'm just I'm just touching a lot of airplanes and learning about batteries. That's about it. <laughs> Sounds like a freaking good time to me. And then uh, on the other side of the state, we've got Austin Thomas. How you doing? I just spilled lining kugels all down inside my fingers and <laughs> down my shirt. I accidentally. All right, so it's a solid start for you. Tapped it, you know. I set it down. You're doing great, long. Austin. You're doing great. I'm okay. Yep. <laughs> Wonderful, Austin. I'm glad that uh, you are having a rough start, much like the people in this episode had a very rough start. Tonight, but you know what? Had... It paid off for them, and it's. It only I'll took be fine. Ten years. I'll be it only fine. Took ten <laughs> they years figured to make it out. You will where too. They wanted to be. We are doing Fleetwood Mac. Fine. Well, I should. I would say finally, but it is pretty early in our in our stead, whole career. We just always wanted to do this from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. This has yeah, been. Yeah. This, this is, has been. In this the has works. been a band we've talked about for quite a while. Um, as you know, we've been doing this for a couple months. This was on our radar since the very beginning, so we are super excited to actually get to do them. I believe this we story talked about is incredible. This before we ever really started. Quite a yes, bit, yeah. I think so too. Yeah, I think this was one of our bands where it's like, do we do this band or this band? We ended up doing Guns N' Roses. Yep. Now we're doing yep. Fleetwood Mac. So this is, yeah, this this has been such a good time so far. Studying and researching them has been super fun. We all read different books for this series. Um, I read Fleetwood Mac, The Definitive Guide by Mike Evans, not the football player for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but the author. He's been doing stuff about on music and artists and stuff for decades and decades. Wouldn't um, it be cool, though, if Mike from the Buccaneers wrote it? Just like both, yeah. Just <laughs> just just very passionate yeah, about, I'm, I'm, I'm very very passionate off season, about yeah. Fleetwood. <laughs> In his off-season, yeah, he just reads, writes <laughs> about Fleetwood Mac. Learn about good, bands. Good for him. Good, yeah. about, good for him. No, no. this book is uh, awesome. It's actually a really good uh, coffee table book. It's huge. It's got tons of pictures, and it's, like it says in the title, it's super definitive. So that's what I read. I like it. I would recommend it. I read Fleetwood Mac, The Complete Illustrated History by Richie Unterberger. That's a rough one to say. Uh, not Overburger. <laughs> not Overburger. It's Unterberger. He, <laughs> his book is just like Tony's as well. It's, just, it's real big. It's real uh, user-friendly, and it's got a lot of pictures as well. It's very good. And I read Fleetwood Mac on Fleetwood Mac, uh, Interviews and Encounters, which kind of sucked for this episode because it really focuses on the band everyone knows and loves, not the earlier years, but it has a lot of uh, first-hand accounts from all the members. So once we get there, I'll have a lot more. I did do a lot of other research for this, though, so I could contribute to this episode. Yes, this episode um, will be basically just the the origins of the band. So actually, we are not going to get to the band that you know and love as um, mainstream Fleetwood Mac until next episode. This is just going to build it out. And this, like I said, this takes place over a decade. Yeah. So Our plan is a, to kind of story. breeze through before quickly in one episode and then really focus on the main band and especially Rumors once that yeah. comes around. We're going to have a whole episode about that album because that album is probably worthy of a couple episodes. But 
Yes, yeah, we're going to get it into one. But, yeah, we're doing a whole episode just on rumors because it's that influential in society. Yeah, so we are excited for that, but we're also excited to do this. We're living in the present as well. Yep, got to move forward. So, without further ado, let's get started. Let's dive into it. So, Fleetwood Mac actually started... uh, years before Fleetwood Mac was ever a thing. So it started in 1963 when John Mayle had a band called the Blues Breakers. Now these guys were hugely influential in the blues communities in the UK. Fleetwood Mac is originally from the United Kingdom. So even though they're really known as an American band, um, that wasn't until much later. Much and we'll later, get yeah. to why that is. So he invited an up-and-coming bassist to join and that bassist was Mr. John McVie. John McVie was born on November 26th, 1945 in Ealing, London. He originally played the trumpet, but then switched to guitar. And then he switched from guitar to bass at age 14 because he realized that everybody played guitar and the bass would be a much more marketable. This was a good move on his part, and we saw the same thing in Peter Steele in Typo Negative. He had the same, well, I mean, he kind of got pushed into it, but... <laughs> it makes me wonder if most bassists just play bass because they don't think they can make it as a guitarist. I honestly, I feel like he probably could have. I feel like he just knew he would be, he would have a better chance if More he was valuable. a really good, really good bassist. Because, I mean, there are a lot of people who can play bass, but to be like an iconic bassist like he ends up being is pretty hard. I feel like. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, to not just be the under the lower register in yeah. the band, but to actually add parts. Yep, yeah, I agree. Uh, it it uh, like Austin said, it does pan out for him very well which we'll get to. Yeah, every band that he's in basically does really well. Um, This band and then Fleetwood Mac. So his first bass was actually just uh, an electric guitar with the top two strings removed. My favorite take on something like this is Max Cavalera from Soulfly and Sepultura. He only strings the top three strings of his guitar, which is really dumb. Like it's fine he plays if you bass? Only, no, he plays guitar, but it's fine if you only use the top three, but you don't have to like just show everybody. You just keep <laughs> them on. You just he's just, yeah, just he's too cool for you. Just him. don't change them ever. Just he's put them on cool. there. Just put them on and just leave them. Hey, that's not his thing, and then that's why he's getting em- mentioned in this episode. Yeah, well, he did something a little different. <laughs> One day we'll revisit when we finally do Sepultura if we ever. ever yes, do. please. <laughs> I, would so, like, yeah. I would like that. Uh, look for that in 2028. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he played He played this guitar until he finally got a proper bass, and then he dropped out of school at the age of 17 to be, surprisingly, to be a, a public uh, entity, be a tax collector. He trained to do it for nine whole months, but he wasn't very good at math, and he was pretty sure he messed up a bunch of people's taxes when he did it. So... <laughs> That's good. That's fine. That's fine. As long yeah. as it's the government side of doing things. The it's happened to government me. side doing it. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. Um, I'm sure so, yeah, he wasn't very myself. good at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to all my own uh, taxes, but it don't seem right. Whoops. <laughs> it seems like you're getting shortchanged. Yeah, a bit. probably. You're getting John McVie. Uh, <laughs> So so he met and befriended his neighbor, Cliff Barton, who was also a bassist. Barton was approached by John Mayle to join his new band, but he was busy, so he gave Mayle McVie's name. And then uh, John McVie joined Blues Breakers in 1963, so that's the first connection we see. 
He was 17 at the time, and Mayo was 30, so he felt a little bit out of place, but he learned a lot in this process. Mayo was unhappy with their current guitarist, so in 1965, he kicked that guitarist out and brought in a rising guitarist named Eric Clapton. Jesus Christ. That's so cool. Just imagine just being like, yeah, I, I hired Eric Clapton, but <laughs> Mayo yeah, ran I, I gave a, him his rise. Yeah. yeah. Mayo ran a super tight group, and he recruited and kicked out members regularly. And in the four and a half years that John was in the band, he said there were 10 lineup changes while he was in. So, this is so I crazy. believe that. He's a 17-year-old kid, and he's playing with Eric, with Eric Clapton. It's like, insane. Pretty, yeah, and I think that Eric Clapton was already neat. on the rise to where he became yes like, i think that they were starting to spray paint like clapton is god and stuff like that through London. yeah like but, i mean he clapton he wasn't was where Fleetwood he was did. in cream yeah yeah he wasn't he wasn't at the level of fame yeah. he was when he was in cream but yeah. i mean still it's Very still incredible cool. to have this have this guy in the band so eric clapton was growing in the blues community and so him being added to blues breakers really solidify them as a blues powerhouse in the uk Clapton ended up taking an impromptu vacation, so they found a temporary fill-in named Peter Green, who was supposedly going to be even better than Clapton. Obviously, this did not end up being the case, and this haunted Peter Green. In my book, he talks about how he would be playing live, and people would just be shouting, We want Clapton! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, oh, yeah. yeah. And he was like, it didn't do anything to like help me be a better guitarist it just hurt (laughs) it's like not encouraging at all yeah that's tough to to go on stage and then just immediately be compared to nobody wants you there even though he's an amazing guitarist yeah uh, so the band was signed to Decca Records in March 1966. later in the same year they lost Clapton who wanted to start his own band Cream oof God, I love cream. I can't Be wait to them someday. Love. <laughs> uh, they asked Peter Green to come back on, but this time as a permanent member, to which he agreed. So Peter Green was born October 29th, 1946, in London as Peter Greenbaum. His father actually changed the last name in 1948 because of most likely World War II, and he had a Jewish last name. I didn't know that was a Jewish name. Yes. So he was given a guitar at the age of 10 and pretty much immediately fell in love with the blues. He dropped out at the age of 15. Basically what I'm finding after doing this podcast is if you finished high school, you, you're, it's too late. Yeah, yeah graduating like, don't high even school try. being in a band are not <laughs> Just, the one hey, to say. If you're 12 years old and you're listening right now, drop out. Drop probably out. be famous. Pick up an instrument. Drop out. Drop out. I swear you probably won't smoke math. Too. You might. You might. That's fine, though. <laughs> well, meth isn't, like, bad. No. It's not. It's way awful. worse things. It's yeah. Like worse heroin. Things like heroin or... What's worse than heroin? Meth. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Peter was in and out of a lot of bands, but was eventually asked to join the Blues Breakers with McVie and Mail. And a few months later, after he joined, the band was having trouble finding a suitable drummer, so Peter asked if he could call up his friend. And that friend ended up being... Mick Fleetwood. Yeah, boy. Mick Fleet- oh, I love Mick Fleetwood. He's just a wonderful musician, wonderful looking man. Oh, man. <laughs> he's really good to see in person. He's a really yeah. nice looking dude, even when he's old. 
I feel you like you guys have different. I think you guys are diff- sending different messages here. <laughs> no, he's a good-looking person, and I mean it. He's a good-looking giant man. He is he a is very, very big tall. person. So this giant man was born on June 24th, 1947, in Redruth, Cornwall, as Michael John Wells Fleetwood. I don't know he if there's a more around- regal place than... I'm from, I'm from Cornwall. <laughs> Cornwall. Did, did Brian Jocks write Cornwall. his biography? <laughs> Fleetwood of Cornwall. Yeah, every house in that whole country is built out of stone. <laughs> out of old, like, limestone. Like, real dug up and... Fashion stone. Yeah. And all yeah, the like, mice's ancestries go back into a Brian Jocks book. What? <laughs> That's a Redwall reference. I'm sorry. Oh, Redwall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a, that's a, wow. Man, a PBS reference. Yeah, I, yeah. Childhood I really liked IPTV. Redwall. God bless you. I loved Redwall. I loved all the oh, series. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, he, so Mick Fleetwood moved around a lot growing up due to his father being in the Royal Air Force. He had two notable posts being in Egypt and Norway and um hell yeah, Air Force baby. This isn't the Air Force, this is the Royal Air Force. The yeah. Royal Air Force. This is higher than your peasant Air Force. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> they, I, I was part of the Air Yankee Force. Air Force. I'm so sorry. <laughs> he was a fighter pilot though, so that's really badass. Was he really? God. Yeah. Oh, I did not know cool. that. That's actually cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, all right. Yeah, pretty yeah. awesome. How about that? <laughs> uh, Mick Fleetwood did not care about school at all, but he did care about his band class. He loved playing the drums, and his father got him his first drum set when he was 13. He dropped out of school at the age of 16 to pursue a full-time career in music. He dropped out and moved to London by himself and... Like I just said, I can't even do my taxes without a computer. <laughs> yeah, just packed up his two suitcases and drum set and moved. Like a computer program that holds my hand through it, like tells me every <laughs> single step. <laughs> Still get it wrong. <laughs> Still, Still somehow it mess it up, Austin. I <laughs> uh, did this. He did this in like the '60s too. When yeah, it's like you could just. Go missing. You can just you disappear. If you moved a hundred miles away from your family, you could never speak to him again and no <laughs> one would know. And that's what Mick did. Uh, he played in a band called Peter B's Lunars when he met Peter Green. It was an instrumental band that was based off of Booker T and the MJs, which were an American band that did a co- song called Green Onions. Um, it was all instrumental, but... Uh, Oh, yeah. About like that. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I think that's good. I think we're going to get through the copyright laws with that because it was so off. Yeah, it's so bad that it has to make the cut. They can't get us for that. Yeah, 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 we're good. No, you. If you didn't know that that was Green Onions, you would have no idea that that was even a song. <laughs> uh, so Peter left Peter B's Lunars. Peter Green left Peter B's Lunars to join the Blues Breakers when he was asked. And then Peter B's Lunars broke up in February 1967, and Mick was banless until Peter Green called him in April to join him in the Blues Breakers. But Mick was fired six weeks after he joined because he was drinking pretty heavily after that. This time. This would follow uh, him for quite a while. 
Oh yes. yeah, yeah. You'll uh, the uh, he and John McVie they enjoy their yep, booze very heavily. Yes, uh, Peter issues. ended up following him leaving the Blues Breakers in June, and he started his own band where he recruited Mick. And this band would be called Fleetwood Mac. The band was named after Mick Fleetwood and John McVie, even though John wasn't a part of the band yet. That's so selfless. Just name it after two people you really want in the band that aren't even in it yet. Not <laughs> yeah, yourself. It's pretty, it's pretty good incentive to join the band. Uh, he actually named it that even though John wasn't in it, so that John would be inclined to come over. So he got the Fleetwood from Mick Fleetwood, and then he got the Mac from McVie. Um, it's, it translates fairly well. But McVie would not join right now. Green had talked to Decca Records, who had signed the Blues Breakers, and they chose to sign Fleetwood Mac on their new independent label, Blue Horizon. They also got a manager named Cliff Adams, who would later change his name to Clifford Davis to avoid confusion with the band The Cliff Adams Singers. Uh, This is incredibly ironic based on what we'll soon learn in one of these coming episodes. Yeah, next episode (laughs) we'll get into it because it really costs a little bit of a diversion. Oh. Yeah, Ethan, you'll enjoy you'll, it. You'll find this out. story gets real wild, which we'll get Can't to on wait. the next episode. It gets wild. <laughs> uh, so they still needed a bassist while they tried to woo McVie, so they decided to bring in Bob Brunning. Bob takes the shaft real hard. <laughs> I'm just going to tell oh, you yeah. right now. But he Poor does Bob. milk it. Um, yeah. Spoiler alert, once Bob gets out of the band, he ends up writing like three or four books on Fleetwood Mac. He, so he really milks this. He's in the band less than a year, and he milks it. He makes it work He's a real capitalist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think he was only yeah, in a few in. months, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. It's pretty short. Yeah, yeah. It's Right very now short. I think we're in June, and I think John comes over in September. Yep, so. you're right. Do that math. <laughs> um, they also decided at this time that they wanted a second guitarist, so they found steel guitarist or uh, slide guitarist Jeremy Spencer. Jeremy Spencer was born on the 4th of July, 1948, in West Hartlepool, England. He's a Yankee at heart, but he does live in the UK. He was influenced by 50s American rock and roll like Elvis, Chuck Berry, and our friend Buddy Holly. And one of his biggest influences throughout the music that he wrote for Fleetwood Mac would be Elmore James. Who is Elmore James? The blues musician. Okay. His his use right, of cool. slide guitar and his in the in the scales that he followed were almost identical in the way he sang. Oh, very good. Okay, cool. Uh, he dropped out of school at sixteen to start playing music. Chick. Yep, there we go. There's your Another there's one. your step one there of being is. a musician. He sent a letter to Decca to have them come check out his band. Decca hated the audition, but they found a lot of interest in Jeremy, so they gave his name to Peter. Peter listened to the album that uh, they had from Decca, and he went to go meet him immediately. He loved the album, and so uh, he invited Jeremy to join Fleetwood. So... Peter Green, Mick Fleetwood, Jeremy Spencer, and Bob Brunning would play their first show on August 13th, 1967 at the National Jazz, Pop, Ballads, and Blues Festival at the Royal Windsor Racecourse. Just a side note, I think we should start adding royal to our name of things. It sounds way cooler. If I just said the Windsor Racecourse, it sounds like a NASCAR track. Yeah, but but just say the royal. Yeah, you should let me sound- start introducing you, then you start talking, and then you introduce me as the Royal Ethan Bonney, and then you introduce Austin as the Royal Austin Thomas. Noted for next episode. Hell yeah. There you I go. I didn't even know I was supposed to. I'm a, yeah, I won't call you sir because you, you haven't these earned notes. that, but Royal is pretty good. Yeah. Um, 
This festival was headlined by bands like Eric Clapton's Cream and the Jeff Beck Group. It also had Donovan, who did the song Mellow Yellow, if you've ever heard that, and a new band called Chicken. Mellow Yellow. Yeah, you know. Mm, That's the one. (laughs) And also had a new band called Chicken Shack, who featured a person who will become a quite important person to us in the future. That's a tease, my friends. So going back to the headliner, Jeff Beck. Jeff Beck was the guy who's going to play with Guns N' Roses on their HBO special, which got to in part three of Guns N' Roses so long ago. But his eardrum got blown out by Matt Sorum and uh, flew back to England and backed out of the TV special. So there you go. And another headliner on this festival was the Blues Breakers. So they were still doing well. Um, Their band, now calling themselves Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, featuring Jeremy Spencer, only had a 20-minute set. But in those 20 minutes, they completely captivated their audience. My book talked about this show a little bit and how, like, devoted peter green was to the blues everything was blues so when they went out there they weren't wearing any special stage clothes they were just wearing what they were wearing they picked up their instruments tuned up on stage in front of everybody and then just started playing like, you know what they didn't have the blues start in america oh god <laughs> <laughs> huh. all right keep going how about that uh, yeah, I think something that we need to emphasize up front that I don't know if we have yet is Fleetwood Mac started out as a blues band. Like, like to the core. S- crazy blues. It's That's awesome. True. Go listen to their debut album uh, oh. titled Fleetwood Mac because it is just blues. It's cool. It's Go really check it out. good. Back to this festival, they played for a crowd of 10,000 people and completely won them over. And this was their first show ever. McVie was actually standing stage side during the entire first show, and they confronted him after the show to try and reel him in, but he still said no to them. You know that that was, like, pretty convincing, though. You know <laughs> oh, that that was, like, five points. I'm yeah. sure it was them very switching. convincing. Like, Tough so convincing, no. he was like, yeah, I'm going to join. I just got to wait until it hey, seems just wait. like I just I, had this idea. I got a royalty check coming exactly. next month. Yeah, yeah, like, it has to be his idea. Yeah. Like, when your wife asks you to do something, and you're like, no. <laughs> Let her do it three do minutes it. later. No, you know, you do it. You just like when you, you say decided no. to exactly. Yeah. Like, you you, you decided to do it, but you nobody... let it happen. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so after after this festival, they began to record their debut album. They were actually snuck into Decca Records studio after hours by Decca producer Mike Vernon, so they could record. Bob Brunning recorded with the group, but not much of this stuff was used because in September 1967, like we said, McVie finally decided to join Fleetwood Mac, which meant Bob was out. Like I was saying, conveniently less than a month (laughs) after the 10,000-person show. It's like he was just waiting for a check. Weird. That's that is rough. Huh. Yeah, I wonder if they re-recorded all of his parts so that he wouldn't get any like royalties from this album that like, came out. Like, yeah, Mr. Brunning, um, just so you know, we had to cut all your bass parts because they just weren't quite on time, so we had to get rid of them. Sorry. We just didn't want to pay you any money. Uh, but this was not that surprising because there was an agreement when Bob came in that if McVie would ever join, Brunning would be out. So they already knew that this could happen. And that's how it goes. I just have this feeling that Bob was like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. I I totally get that. He comes back. I'll just hang it up. That's fine. I'll just fill in for the time. But he was like, 
it's not really gonna happen, right? <laughs> like, he's not really gonna he's not gonna leave this really established blues band to come join this band, the, correct? The Breakers are doing great. Why would he come here? <laughs> uh, uh Bob, you gotta oh, sleep with one eye open, man, because man. there's a knife coming for you back. <laughs> Uh, so the blue the the reason that John McVie ended up leaving the Blues Breakers is because they were getting too jazzy, bringing in saxophones and stuff, and he wasn't feeling it. McVie was a blues guy at heart, so he booked. One specific quote I had was McVie saying that the last straw for him was at a show. One of the horn players was asking uh, Mail what to play during a solo, and Mail just replied with, "Oh, just just play free form." And John made his decision at that moment that he was no longer going to be a part of the Blues Breakers. <laughs> Ooh, that's, yeah, makes sense. Yep. Nobody likes freeform jazz. Yeah, frick that, man. <laughs> Get out of <laughs> I'm here. out of here. And another small bit was that Peter Green claimed running wasn't real great anyway, and all he did during shows was, Look at girls tits all night while he played. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Oh. I didn't know like what kind of how British. There's like yeah, hey, right on. There are two British accents, and you went for one of them. I, I want you to know that when I saw them live, like it was real thick. Like I did not expect it to be I'm as sure thick it, as it was going to be. It was everything thick. I've heard from like uh, Mick and John is like the like more regal, you know, Cornwall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Real fucking it Cornwall. Sound like it came out of I'm Cornwall. I'm just going to yeah. cockney it like, up as much as I like can. Like, Christy was the same way, too. It was thick. So, like thank it. you. He helped to record their first singles, I Believe My Time Ain't Long, and Ramblin' Pony, which were released in November 1967. So, just two months after he joined, they released their first two singles. It didn't do much outside the blues community, but it was pretty well received in there. But... Three months later, on February 24th, 1968, they would release their first full-length album, and this album would do incredibly well. Here it, it was comes. a self-titled. It was a self-titled album, and it was Bluesy. <laughs> Whoa! <was> it Bluesy? <laughs> figure out what you were typing there. <laughs> I totally got it. I just left it alone. Yeah, there you go. Oh, well yeah, done. it was so Super bluesy. Thank you, thank you. Uh, it blew up almost overnight. It actually peaked at number four, which is crazy for a debut album, no and shade. stayed in the top ten for 17 weeks. The album art for this is simple. It just shows an alleyway with some graffitied trash cans and some loose trash, uh, crumpled up paper, whatever. It's kind of a long alleyway, kind of dreary, whatever, with Fleetwood Mac written up in the upper left-hand corner in, like, a paint. It looks like somebody kind of painted it on but not very well, so it's kind of splotchy and stuff. Uh, it just says Fleetwood Mac. And, Tony, I don't mean to be nitpicky, but there's a, a stray dog in the alleyway, and it's oh, got yeah, its no, head down. Oh, yeah, no, there's a stray dog in yeah. the alleyway with its head down. Yeah, thank you. Just in the alleyway, head down. Just just, just in an down. alleyway. <laughs> just a just an alleyway with a brick wall. Yeah, uh, you get it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah so you got you got the picture. Yeah. So yeah. after the album came out and was very successful, they were invited to be on the BBC radio show Top Gear, later translated into the uh, Top Gear that everyone knows and loves. I was going to ask cars. that. Is that the same Top Gear? I mean, I'm sure that it is the same, but it isn't the same at all. <laughs> I'm sure it's no the same thing. title. 
Same title, bingo. <laughs> Same words were used in both of them. Uh, this went very well for them and helped increase their popularity even more. After this, they recorded their next single, Black Magic Woman. This song would later be covered and made famous by Santana in 1970. And Santana's version would reach the top five in the United States. I really love how anytime anyone talks about this song, they just say Black Magic Woman by Santana no one mentions Rob Thomas being involved at all. Hey, was Rob hey, Thomas Austin, part of this? Are, yeah. you, are you talking about the song Smooth instead? You're right. What are you? I also do love that nobody mentions Rob Thomas on this song. <laughs> Uh, I'm hanging yes. in the <laughs> Good, good, good. I got a black magic I just want you to know I had to be so tactful right there. I had to be very tactful. Yes. Ethan, you did well. Ethan was waiting. Ethan I, had the ball in his hand, and he let you just toss it up so he could freaking smack it out of the park with that. He was waiting to throw you under the bus. <laughs> I saw this little I, emoji guy in here, and I thought you were just agreeing with me. <laughs> but that's not the case. Ethan had malicious intent in mind, and I respect oh, it. I respect the game, my friend. Uh, almost, so the single, this, almost need this to keep single, that in just for out of respect. Uh, please do. This single did not do super well, reaching number thirty-seven on the UK charts, and it completely failed to chart in the US. Yep. Still, they're still a UK band. But the single and the album did give them enough fame around Europe to allow them to tour for about a month. And then when they got back from that tour, it was pretty uneventful, uh, they jumped in the studio to start their next full-length album. They wanted to add some new aspects to this album so it would stand apart from their last. Uh, this album was also recorded completely live in the studio, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's kind of how they enjoyed doing things yep. to get that whole live sound and really mimic their live performances that they do. Until they're In not this, allowed to anymore. Bingo. In this, they added sax, harmonica, and piano sounds, which I find interesting that they decided to add these as McVeigh had left the Blues Breakers for the same reason, Very adding these extra parts. Very interesting. It does seem yeah. weird. Yeah. yeah, but I, I, I guess you can play sax in all these instruments in a bluesy fashion and not in a jazzy yeah. fashion, and that changes yeah. the style of it. So I guess you're not telling them to just play freeform jazz. Yeah, exactly. Point blank. So Duster Bennett was brought in to play the harmonica parts, and then they brought in another Blues Horizon artist to write and record the piano parts, Miss Christine Perfect, later known as Christine McVie. I don't know why they make why she ever changed her name. It was already perfect. You know, hang in the hang in the silence. Already perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, her name was Christine Perfect. It was perfect. So Christine Perfect, aka Christine McVie, was born on July twenty third, nineteen forty three, in England. Her father played violin, and her grandfather was the organ player in the Westminster Abbey. She began playing piano at the age of four, but didn't really start to appreciate it until she was a teenager. She learned and fell in love with rock music when she was 15, when her older brother brought home a Fats Domino songbook for her to play. But did not drop out. She did not, actually. She actually went for higher education. Yeah, she, she went to and graduated. 
It's incredible. Yeah, this is. I think this might be the one of the first people in the whole series where they actually graduated. She's the most educated in, by in like real a time. Yeah, yeah, good for she's her. She's like very smart. She's probably actually the brains of the band. Oh, Christine's actually fucking awesome. I yeah. have a yeah, line she, about it later, but very yeah. cool. Uh, yeah, so she went to and graduated from Birmingham College of Art and proceeded to play in a bunch of bands. And as she said in my book, which I can painfully relate to. She yeah. graduated with a completely useless degree in sculpture. Austin, what's your degree in? Oh, you know, <laughs> stu- studio studio art. Yeah, studio <laughs> art. Yeah, way to. That's good to limit yourself on the art you can do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, when you say <laughs> art, it's isn't art kind of broad? I don't you know. Can, you can really do anything in a studio. Yeah, that's good. That's true. It's a bachelor's. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Get We're job. technically in a studio right now. I basically, have I don't a even have a degree, so you're better than me. Yeah, if you say so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, Tony. <Chief. laughs> a lot of, lot of faith. Shots fired. Go on. So Christine eventually found herself in a band called Chicken Shack, who we mentioned earlier, who played at the Blues Festival. Mike Vernon heard them and signed them to Blue Horizon. So Chicken Shack and Fleetwood Mac began to play together pretty regularly, and John and Christine actually got close and were dating when she played her parts on the Fleetwood Mac's album. Shack and Mac, shacking up. Oh, yeah. Some shake and bake. Oh, man, Chicken Shack. That's a bad name. (laughs) I kind of like it. A little bit. (laughs) That's a weird thing. I kind of like it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, So the band took time out of the studio between June and July 1968 to tour across America. It wasn't a big success, but the band had a good time seeing the country. They had never been there. And they were all in their early 20s, so it was really cool that they got to travel for work being in a band. They were just living it up at this point. Oh, yeah, they were eating all the McDonald's they could. Oh they went God. and saw Mount Rushmore. Yeah. They, they probably saw Wendy's. They got mugged in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> They're really experiencing life in the U.S. They're, yep, exactly. No, 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 yeah, no. life in the world. Everything's in the U.S. That's oh. right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, Ethan. Uh, thank you again to all the people who listen outside the United States. We have thank more. You, Cam, thank you, Cam. Thank you extra to everyone that listens okay. in the U.S. <laughs> Please, everyone. We love you. God. We can't. can't do this. Uh, <laughs> so when they got back to the UK, they released another song, Need Your Love So Bad, which reached number 31 on the charts. Pretty cool. A few weeks later, on August 23rd, 1968, they released their next album called Mr. Wonderful. This album would reach number 10 on the UK chart, so it did really, really well for them. The album sleeve also credits both Duster Bennett and Christine Perfect for their parts on the album. Although, uh, it actually got Christine's name wrong, because by the time the album came out, she and John were married. They had gotten married on August 3rd, 1968. That's very cute, 20 days before. Yeah, very cute. Um, Yeah. Okay, so the album artwork... What? <laughs> so, so, so the album artwork for this was an upward shot of a shirtless and very skinny Mick Fleetwood. I didn't know if you know he is super super skinny. Oh, he's thin. Um, he, he is looking pretty surprised off in the distance, yeah. and he is wearing a sun hat. And if you look down on the side, he is kind of holding a doll. Um, yeah. And if you look into his eyes, it looks as though he may 
be under the influence of drugs. Huh, I don't it's know how you're getting that from a picture, but... It looks a little glassy. <laughs> His eyes, you know? Either way, like, this is where we begin a long history of Mick being on album covers. Yeah, he does. He's on many he's really on Mac albums. Yeah, um, and then actually, kind of fun. If you opened up the vinyl sleeve, the the album uh, cover, it would actually display a portrait mode of it. So it'd be like a fold out in a Playboy like magazine. Centerfold. Exactly. Yeah, you got it. Uh, where you I know, would see. I know his... about these. I've heard about these. Yeah, Austin's heard about these centerfolds. Yeah. Uh, it would look like he was actually naked. You would see more of his body, but he was actually covered up by leaves, and then you would see more of the doll, and just kind of fine, you know. All right. That, yeah. Quick question. What? Do you think his dick was bigger than Peter Stills? Nope. Nah. Nah, damn. So Peter wasn't fully happy with this album. He liked it, but he wanted more. He wanted to continue with the blues sound, but wanted to broaden the band's horizon. They were seeing the psychedelic rock movement taking shape, and they decided that they wanted to try and jump on that train. So they decided to add another guitarist to help out with this change, and they found that and brought in Danny Kerwan. Danny Kerwan was born May 13, 1950 in Brixton, London. Danny grew up playing the guitar, taking inspiration from... Hank Marvin of the band The Shadows, and even Eric Clapton. He found himself in a band called The Boiler House in 1968. I think that this may be the first contradiction that we have in this story because I have them opening a gig for Fleetwood Mac in September of 1967. That's like a whole year before. I think that you're right. I think he was just in 1968 when this whole change happened. That could be it. Yeah, so both stories are correct. He played, because I think that's how they kind of met and and that kind of thing. So they knew each other from before, but then he was in Boiler House in 1968, and so then that's how how this happened. That that makes more sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So Peter Green showed the band to Mike Vernon, who was considering signing them. He realized the only talent in the band was Mike Kerwan, so he passed Danny. on them. Yeah, I say Danny. You just threw a mic in there. So I, <laughs> you really like, just I mean, so it's cool you like Mike, but that's fine. Like, I'd go, I don't know. You just I'll do, do anything, it. I like I it, yeah. <laughs> uh, He realized the only talent was in Danny Kerwan, so he passed on them. Peter and Mike were going to help Danny find a new band to be a part of, but they realized they should just add him to Fleetwood, and so that's what they did. Mike said adding Danny into the band was a great addition, and it moved them away from being a blues-only band. As much as these um, characters are not going to stick around, we're really seeing Fleetwood Mac transform right here like as a big part into what they would become because they said he was like, really more rock and roll so he really started to change their sound from blues but at the same time jeremy spencer was really into that old kind of country like sun Studios sound and then at the same time christine was brought on and she was helping to produce some of these songs so it's like they really changed from blues to this pop rock with like rumors and self-titled and everything but we're watching it slowly happen at this point yeah every person that gets added on is just is just being it's just removing them one step away from blues yep. and one step towards the song and in a different direction yeah yeah exactly so yeah this is kind of the first big jump into 
them moving away from blues. Yep. So uh, they thought labeling themselves as a blues-only band was very limiting, and so they brought in Danny. So they went back into the CBS studio in London to record their next single titled Albatross, which was released on November 25th, and it had a very different feel. And this is thanks in part and more than just in part to Danny joining the band. It was a completely instrumental song, and it had a mellow, laid-back, almost Caribbean feel. A quote from Peter Green, If you don't have a vocalist, then the guitar must sing. Pretty and that's profound. that's exactly what it did. It is very mellow. Yeah. It's kind of, it's fun to listen to, but it is unlike anything that they had done. It actually shot up the charts, reaching number five, uh, and this was the highest that one of their songs had been up to this point. And this might be the first real contradiction, I guess. In <laughs> uh, my book, it said it got uh, to number one in the UK and number one, number 104 in the US. Oh, okay. I well, think that I think that number one happened after its initial release. Like maybe I think you're no, I think you're correct because yeah. I think a slow it, build. it gets released again yeah, slow much build. later, like yes. in like the the early seventies or the because mid seventies. Yeah, Peter Green said this was his only number one he ever got with Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, um, so I think it got released again, and that's where it popped up. So right yes. now it reached number five, and then we'll just say later it reached number one. Yes. Uh, and so they took this new song in the new lineup, and they toured across Europe and then America, opening for the Grateful Dead for two months. The tour across America went much better than the first. They were now playing to sold-out venues, and one of the shows they played was at a Miami music festival, which had an attendance of 100,000 people. And if you're sitting here wondering how in the hell they were able to score tours that were able to get 100,000 people, the answer is pretty simple. Their booking agency was American Premier Talent Agency with whom they had a three-year deal with. Uh, This agency also represented The Who, Herman's Hermits, and Arthur Brown. Who is the man who frantically screams, I am the god of hellfire, and I give you fire in our (laughs) intro song. How about wow. that? That's where it came from, everyone. I, I like that. I respect that lean back. I think you got the perfect distance. I was trying. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. Thank you. It sounded roomy. Yeah. I liked it. So the band recorded their next single while on tour in New York. So this was actually the first taste of uh, Fleetwood Mac in America that we got, The what, what would come of this album. While on tour, they also got to play with Muddy Waters and B.B. King, Two of their idols, both of these guys were huge blues players, so this was a pretty big deal for them. They recorded an album at the Legendary Blues Recording Studio, Legendary Chess Recording Studio in Chicago. Peter said this actually came to fruition because at one point Marshall Chess was in England and they were talking and he was like, if you're ever in uh, the States, you should come lay down some tracks at my studio. And Peter was like, yeah, yep, I won't. Let's do that. That's so cool. And, yeah, there's pictures of it, and it's super fun to see, like, just see them in the studio. So they actually were only there for two days, and they played with piano player Otis Spann and then a big uh, brass band or big big backing band, essentially. full band. Big full band. That's what I'm trying to say. Probably session musicians. That's a safe bet, my friend. Uh, They recorded the album Blues Jams at Chess, which will be released in December of 1969. This will be some of the last blues tracks that the band would record. 
They also, fun fact, tried LSD when they were in New York. When they got back to the UK from the tour in February 1969, they found out that they had actually blown up over there. While they did find out that they were celebrities, they found out that Albatross had divided their audience, as a lot of their longtime fans thought they were selling out with this new, non-blues sound. The band defended themselves, saying that blues were also mainstream, so they were not going mainstream because they'd always been mainstream. They were just broadening their music to reach a wider audience. Have just we expanding ever had a musician? the audience. Yeah, I say, Austin, could you say that one more time a little thicker? What you may call selling out, I call expanding the audience. Thank you. Mr. Waylon Jennings. <laughs> yes. This wider audience claim was backed up when they released their next single that was recorded in New York, Man of the World, in March 1969. Jeremy Spencer was not on the track, opting out for some unknown reason. Green actually said this was a problem he had with Spencer. He could be super apathetic about contributing to the process. Like, he would mostly just show up to play. That's weird. So he didn't give any input on what should be created. Not a he lot. He just like, play things that were already created. Yeah, he did, hey guys, he did record a couple here. songs like we're about to talk about, but he just didn't yeah. care to help that much. That's, that's fun. Everybody loves a non-participant yeah. in their band. Nah. <laughs> Fucker. Um, what are you so, trying to say, well, I, I I didn't say anything. Oh, I thought you said, hey, guys. Oh, no, no I, said, I was just saying, hey, he's a real fucker. That's what I oh. said. <laughs> oh, yeah. real fucker, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Jeremy Spencer would be on the B side of the single in a song called Someone's Gonna Get Their Head Kicked In. Very straightforward, where he does a very good Elvis impression, which was apparently a normal for Spencer. He would do it on stage a lot, and he was pretty yeah, apparently good he at was it. A, he'd, he'd actually mimic He'd wear the yeah. costumes and stuff too. He had some yeah. like like uh, drapey, uh, what do I want to say, tassely <laughs> costumes too. He was that he would at. wear on, on stage Mac shows. Yeah, he did that. Man, what if a he just walked in in the middle of that, you'd be real confused. He's about to be wearing some even cooler clothes pretty soon. Like mm-hmm. none. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this and uh, the, uh, something weird about this single that they released, The Man of the World, Someone's Gonna Get Their Head Kicked In single, is it actually wasn't released under the Blue Horizon label. Their manager, Clifford Davis, knew that the end of their one-year contract was coming up. He failed to mention it to Blue Horizon, however, and they seemed to have forgotten about it. So when the contract was up, Clifford had them record under a new label called Immediate, which was owned by Andrew Oldham, the old manager for Rolling Stones. Not knew him. And, uh, not knew him. This is old ham. <laughs> old, Oldham. Yep. <laughs> no, it's not this Oldham. It's old ham. Gross ham. Old ham. Old ham. Yeah, it's it's two two hard syllables. Still crying, gross ham. Old ham. I get it. In my world, anyway, it's two syllables. Um. Mike Vernon was understandably upset with Clifford and the band as they had just agreed to a $250,000 advance from CBS, Blue Horizon's parent company. But Davis had other plans in mind. He ultimately got them on Warner Brothers' record label, uh, that one of their smaller labels called Reprise. That was that was what the, who they would release their next albums through. The band was upset with the move as they enjoyed working with Mike Vernon and Blue Horizons. Peter was most unhappy with this, and he was most uh, vocal with his disdain about the move. With the power of hindsight, this is so insane. They're on Warner Brothers, <laughs> literally like. Huh. Maybe not a bigger <laughs> label to be yeah, on like now. The <laughs> biggest, the biggest <laughs> current name. Like when I think of like 
I can think of so many shows that started with a WB in front of it. It's weird. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. No, this was a huge move for yeah. them. But, I mean, any move is going to, like, if you have the creative control like they had and stuff like that, it's going to be a tough move, yeah. even if you're moving up and getting more money and stuff yeah. like that. It's going to seem um, like a and, and we'll see that. We'll see these problems getting new management come into play uh, basically right now. <laughs> so they had a job to do, so they got back into the studio to record once again. The band was used to recording in a live album altogether to recreate their their live show sound, like we said earlier. But the new way that Warner Brother wanted them to record, the new way that, but the new way that Warner Brother wanted, there's two brothers, the, uh, but the new way that Warner Brothers wanted them to record was in a more traditional manner, with drums laying down the track with scratch guitar and vocals, and then the instruments building on top of that. They felt that this new style of recording was very sterile, and it didn't properly recreate their live sound that they were known for. Jeremy once again did not play any parts on this album except for one, which only saw release in the United States. Then Play On, their next album was released on September 9th, 1969. The album art was of a buff nude man riding a white a horse. Like a strong nude man, not like a nude <laughs> nude like- man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like he was he was a built man who was nude, yeah. He went to the um, gym. Yeah, so he is on a white horse who is covered in swirls. The horse, it has a pattern on it covered in swirls, and they're uh, running through a field of flowers uh, kind of against, like, it's like kind of a field, and then in the background there's, like, some orangish-yellow. The sky is, like, orangish-yellow, and it's patterned in triangles. Uh, and then Fleetwood Mac was up written up in the upper left-hand corner, and then Then Play On was in the upper right-hand corner. And the image for this was actually a colorized version. They took um, just patterns and put it on the painting to colorize it. It was actually a painting called Domesticated Mural Painting by artist Maxwell Armfield, which was featured in a 1917 edition of the Countryside magazine. How, pretty cool. How did they get away with that? <laughs> that is, that is just like a pretty good description. Huh. It may have been before copyright laws were in uh, effect as well, because the copyright laws that we know today are much different than the copyright laws of 1917 or 1916 when this painting was created. There you Back go. then, I think it was like you have 28 years or or uh, f- uh, 56 years or something like that, or and then it goes ass. into the public domain. So it could have been that this painting was in the Already, public domain yeah. by the time that they yeah. used it. <clears throat> Um, but we won't get into copyright law. We don't care about that. Just nope. check out our intro. Uh, the album peaked <laughs> at number six on the UK charts. Uh, they're <laughs> the highest their full length had gotten to this point. They and also quick reached... note, this Go. album is the earliest album that you play a song from when they play live now. Hmm. Ah, they play Oh Well, which that. was on this album. Yeah. I believe that gets oh. re-released on Rumors, doesn't it? Fun Probably. fact, actually. Oh Well is the song that was released in the United States that Jeremy Spencer was on later. Mm. Yep. This is the only song that they play that's that early. Yep. That's actually cool. Good to know. Um, This album... Okay. Uh, it, it This album also reached just outside 100 in the United States, so they were gaining some traction there as well. But their foundations were shaken in early 1970 because Mr. Peter Green found Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I wonder Fame where. was beginning... 
What? <laughs> Fame was beginning to get to him. I don't know. Fame was beginning to get to Peter, and he didn't know how to handle it, so he looked towards religion for solitude. First he became a Buddhist, and then he became a Masonic Christian. He started wearing long flowing robes and a big crucifix around his neck. This, paired with his long curly brown hair, made him look like Jesus. Or like a uh, like a opposite Rasputin. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, like like he's like on the right shoulder and then Rasputin's yeah. on the left yeah, shoulder. Yeah, 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 I get it. Um so Peter began shutting himself off from the band and demanding that they give all of the money they had made to charity, which the band was not cool with. Peter was using more and more LSD after trying it in New York back on that tour. This all came to a head on March 22, 1970 in uh, Munich, Germany. Peter and Danny were doing LSD at a hippie commune, and Peter was given a tainted dose of the drug, and so he had a bad trip. And it was actually so bad that he never fully recovered from it. So there are quite a few different accounts of this, and Ethan and I are just going to share a few because they're kind of different and kind of fun, and you can just make it for what yourself. So uh, Nothing bad about an LSD trip. Yeah, yeah. So like we said, Bob Running was uh, writing about them, so I think he was still hanging out with them at the time because he said, we were in Germany, and Peter told me he'd been invited to a party. I knew there was going to be a lot of drugs around, so I suggested he didn't go, but he went anyway, and I understand from him that he took what turned out to be very bad impure LSD, and he was never the same again. Which what I have is like a year later. Hmm. Yeah, because I yeah. because like I said, it, uh, from my book also it said 1970. Yeah, and what and say so? I mean, Bob Brunning could be not lying. Yeah, he could, I mean, and like maybe he maybe also his could be issue lying. Started before, yeah. <laughs> so someone here is not being truthful. So, um, in my book, which is another contradiction, this happened in a commune in Berlin. Dennis Keene, a roadie who went with Peter, said he drank a wine laced with extremely pure LSD instead. Despite what he took, Mick had to coerce him out of the commune very delicately because he was tripping his balls off. Yeah. And one more thing. Uh, Christine McVie said that um, obviously she wasn't there, but the people he left with were decadent German jet set types who were into black magic and weird occult stuff. So counts are all pretty different here. I'd like to think so, like maybe maybe um uh what's his name? Someone help me. Mike Evans. No. What? Earlier. Black Magic. <laughs> Early. Black oh, Ma- Crowley. Uh, uh, Thank you. <laughs> That's it, Crowley. Alistair. Okay. Alistair. What are you gonna say about him? He just had a part to do with this. Maybe, maybe Alistair Crowley was just hanging out. You know, I don't know. This is huh. probably yeah. not in the timeline, but it's fine. I gotta say, we'd yeah. probably Anton know LeVay. if that was the case. Uh, maybe, maybe even <laughs> Chris we, Angel. We I gotta never say, the know. history books probably would have retained that. I think Chris oh, no. Angel was there. <laughs> God. Okay, I'm gonna tell you what it was right now. It was Alistair Crowley, Chris Angel, David Blaine, and you B- forgot and Jesus, Bill Clinton. And they were all Jesus, there. Bill Clinton. Oh, and they was in Germany. Adolf Hitler was there too. He came yeah, up from yeah. Argentina. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, <laughs> getting back, getting back to what is going to make it in the episode. <laughs> Thank you. So, Thank you. The so the stories here are very different. This happened anywhere between 1969, 1970, and uh, it was LSD. Whether he was given it directly or whether it was in wine, that we know. whether it was pure uh, or impure. 
it, yeah, he did have bad LSD and he did have a super bad trip. Um, or great LSD. We don't, we don't I say, or it was either really good <laughs> or really awesome. bad, Tony. He got the most bang for his buck. He got roughly <laughs> he a lifetime's worth of LSD. <laughs> he, he definitely tripped his freaking balls off. <laughs> yes, he did. Um, it affected Peter so much that he left the band and music altogether shortly after the incident. He told Clifford Davis in his hotel room that he was done, and then Clifford had to go tell the rest of the band. The rest of the band was understandably upset, but he was kind enough to stick around until the end of the tour so they didn't have to cancel the rest of their shows. He also helped record their next single, Green Manalishi, which reached the top 10 in the UK. But when the show was over on May 28, 1970, Peter Green was officially out of the band. Peter would continue to struggle with the bad trip episode he had and was eventually diagnosed as a schizophrenic. And I think there's a he lot of speculation re- that this was because of the the bad LSD. Like, it, um, His schizophrenia Yeah, you can get drug-induced from. schizophrenia. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I can see that 100%. Yeah, because he was, like, really normal yeah. before this. Like, he was a pretty down-to-earth, just calm, level-headed and, guy. And also, uh, uh, drugs can either exacerbate or... Um, not exacerbate previous uh, predispositions that you may have. This is, like, not a joke or anything, but this is literally what happened to Gigi Allen. His brother Merle dropped acid into his coffee because he was a super straight-laced guy, and he went fucking psychotic. And we have to do Gigi Allen at some point. Oh, someday we will. How about We're going to be very delicate on that episode. Gigi Allen is only crazy because of acid, so, yes. Uh, yeah, stay tuned for it. That's going to be a fun one. So Peter Green was arrested and sent to an insane asylum for pulling a gun on his accountant because his accountant was sending Peter royalty checks for the work he had done in Fleetwood. So he was mad because he was getting money. That's so sad. Like, just so out of it. That's rough. Oh, yeah. He he, he had it He's like, I don't Uh, want this money. Why are you mailing me? Yeah, yep. stop. Because at this point, this. he was like, "I don't want material possessions. I am. Yeah, I want donate to poor people." Because he was real out of himself. Yes, he was. Uh, he did get help and eventually learned to manage his schizophrenia and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1998, the same year as Santana. Where and actually at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they jammed on Black Magic Woman together. Mm-hmm. Kind of nice. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, it's like... Because he wrote it. Yeah. Kind of a... Yeah, it's kind of a nice uh, uh, cap to the story. Now, in 2019, he looks like a chunky, balding, white-haired dude who wears Tommy Bahamas (laughs) and really enjoys judging people by the size of their boats. (laughs) Oh, that's only a... That's only... Oh, that's a small little 33-inch liner. Uh, I don't know boats. I don't know anything about boats. Do you even know how to rig a sail? Do you know... I have seen him in pictures rocking a bucket hat like no one I've ever seen. Yeah, no, he seems like he lives on a dime. I think he's doing great now. Yeah, he looks yeah like, like I he's said, got he, it down. he learned to manage it. And, he learned and to manage okay. the after effects of acid. Good for him. Yeah, so he is he's he's doing okay now. But back in 1970, he would be the first out of the revolving door that would plague the band for the next six years. 
So post Peter Green, Danny and Jeremy were going to have to fill Peter's shoes, which would be no easy feat. The band decided to get away from everything for a while, so they went and got a place in the English countryside. They found two old buildings, which were previously used to dry hops for beer, and uh, these were called kiln houses, which if you know anything about Fleetwood Mac's next album, that's where they get the inspiration for it. They found these two places, these two buildings, and everyone moved in. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. Uh, John and Christine McVie, Mick and his new wife, Jenny Boyd. This is George Harrison's sister, which is kind of cool. Wait, yeah, who's George that? Harrison's, George Harrison. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, uh, George Harrison's sister. He's from the band married- Pink Floyd. So, oh, really? Pink heard. Floyd? What songs did they do? Was it like, uh, I'm just trying to think of a Pink Floyd song. Quick. We can cut. Uh, we can just keep moving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, joke is done. Um, yeah, no, George Harrison was. Paranoid. Uh, that was a song by Pink Floyd. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, Good. There you go. The joke is it done. So uh, uh, Mick was George Harrison's brother-in-law. That's how it yes. works. The sisters were sisters, and they were brothers-in-laws. Um, and then, so Jeremy Spencer and his wife and son, and then Danny and his girlfriend, and then two roadies, Dennis Keene and Dinky Dawson, also moved in. So there were a lot of people in there. That's a real, um, you it's know. It's like full house. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whatever uh, with with <laughs> the milkman, the paper boy. I'm done. Even TV. Uh, we all Peter got gone, they just, good. Uh, we all got our part in. With Peter gone, they decided that they also needed something else in the band, and that something would be filled with keys played by Christine McVie, who was made a full-time member Friggin of finally. the band. Finally. It's about time. This is, like we said, this is just so one more step away from God. blues and into soft Takes rock. Takes so long. This place is also where they recorded their next album, which would be called Kiln House Appropriately. It was released on September 18th, 1970, and would reach number 39 on the UK charts. The album art the album art is what looks to be a ballpoint pen drawn picture of two children, a boy and a girl, and then a dog on a path in some woods. The little girl is in the foreground, and then uh, she's pointing at some more woods or a couple of birds off in the distance, and then the boy is behind the girl, and then like the dog is on the ground, and then um, and then there are some elves in a tree peeking at them and then there uh on that tree is a sign that says kiln house and then another sign under it that says fleetwood mac christine is actually credited with the drawing of this album what is killing ethan over there i don't know i think it's the elaborate explanation oh thank you thank you i was just like watching you deteriorate and i was like what's happening (laughs) it might also be the alcohol go look it up go look it up you know what you should do? You should go look it up, and then and then, or you should just try and draw it as I describe it. Ooh, and send them in. That's the right way to do it. Yeah, I will pay Let's you if you draw something that Tony describes and then send it to me. I'll pay you. I'll pay you something. I'm not saying a lot, but I will. Something. That's a, that's a bold, bold claim, move. my friend. You heard it. You heard it on the episode. Ethan will pay you money if you He'll send in a drawing something. that I describe. Just do it. Uh, so, yes, this this was actually drawn by Christine McVie. Christine is so fucking cool, honestly. She's like, 
really multi-talented in these ways, and all the songs that we'll find out she wrote and composed that are huge hits is insane. Yeah, she's huge. She is such a good yeah. addition. And to she's the like the only one that graduated high school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and college. And um, she is also, I'm pretty sure she's also very, very, like, level-headed and also just down to yeah. earth. Like, yeah. she's like I said before, person. Like, she might be the brains. Yeah, I would say probably. And then, though Christine played on this album, she was only credited through an inner sleeve illustration, as she was still signed to Blue Horizon when she played on it, so legally she couldn't be given any credit on the album because it would be a breach of her contract. She eventually broke away from Blue Horizon and made the announcement that she joined Fleetwood Mac while they were on tour at the end of 1970. And this for her was definitely a blessing and a curse, because in my book she was talking about how... At the time when Just John was in Fleetwood and she was doing stuff with Chicken Shack and her own stuff, they would, like, literally be passing each other, walking in the front door. Like, he would be leaving, she would be showing up, they barely saw each other, and then it flipped to they are together 24-7, like, never all the time. and it's gonna, that's gonna be a big problem. Make problems. Yeah, I mean, imagine working with your spouse, like, that makes it extremely tough. I Couldn't mean, having a professional and a personal relationship would be so and, difficult. Yeah, nope. you can't even, like, after shows, you're in the same hotel room, you're in the same green room. Like, you can't come down yeah. in you your own You can't go way. to parties anymore. Yeah. And, like, if you have normal disputes like re- people do in relationships, you then have to go on stage and like, act put like on a professional yeah. performance. Yeah, you yeah. have to act like, like nothing you... has just happened. Right. So, I mean, it... That would be extremely tough. I don't know how they did it and for as long. We're going to get did. into that like deep uh, throughout this whole thing, honestly. Deep yeah, cuts. Yep, you will find out relationships are not uh, relationships and Fleetwood Mac do not go yeah. together very not well. well at all. They do not. Two we will two. get through it. Um, they toured through Europe and then through America, and this tour would be where they would lose another member. They had just finished a show in San Francisco. That's in the United States for all you people that live out of the country. And they were getting ready to board a flight to Los Angeles. Jeremy said that he had a bad feeling about the flight as L.A. had been hit with an earthquake the day before. Mick assured him that everything would be okay. So eventually he boarded the plane and they landed in L.A. with no issues. They all got checked into the hotel early in the morning and Jeremy told Mick he was going to run out and grab some magazines he didn't return for the entire day and so the band had to cancel their show at the whiskey a go-go a popular venue in the in la and go and look for him they got a hold of the police who told them that he was last seen talking to some members of the children of god sect and uh, austin why don't you tell them who children of god is okay colts this is one of the bad ones this is like this is like a real bad one. Like this is yeah. this was uh discovered by a man named David Berg and this was like like mothers need to love their kids kind of cult and Burke got to love mm. everyone kind of cult. Like Yeah. Lot of real shady shit went on in Children of God. Mm. A lot of pedophilia. Lot, Austin's yeah. dancing yeah. around. There it. There's a lot of pedophilia in yeah. the children of, of God. Which yeah. resulted in one boy who was like, there's this whole story about this kid who was like the chosen son that got it the worst of anyone, and he tried to come back and basically uh, kill Berg and his mom. I don't think he succeeded, but 
if you're bored, if you're bored on a Sunday, look into Children of God because it is it's pretty fucked. Bad. It's a rabbit hole. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's a bad. It's a bad place you want to be in. You don't want to be in. It's a bad place to be in. Uh, and so for the next four days, the band, as well as Clifford Davis and one of their roadies, Phil McDonald, looked for Jeremy. They had put his image on the news, and they called out to him on the radio and even tried a psychic. And remember, Jeremy at this time was a fairly famous person. I mean, they had a couple hits in the United States. They had a lot more hits and were way bigger in the U.K. There were definitely people who know who he was, at least. Exactly, yeah. It'd be like if a member of, like, uh, like, Foster the People went missing now. Like, you don't know exactly who they are, but everyone knows who Foster the People is. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, this was like... This was kind of a big deal that he was missing. So Clifford and Phil were eventually tipped off to uh, the fact that he may be at the Children of God place and where that was. So they went to go look. The Children of God members uh, initially denied that he was there, but after some prying, they brought him out. Now, I don't know if um, some of the band went with them or what, but in my book, Christine was talking about it, and she said when they went and finally were able to speak with him, there was like... 400 kids surrounding him just like chanting prayers while he's trying to talk to them so no thank you that that makes that makes your skin crawl a little bit i believe that 100 percent based on a lot of things i've read about children of god so yeah yeah whether christine saw it or not that is a totally within the realm of possibility i don't like it (laughs) <laughs> what they saw was not Jeremy. They saw a robe-wearing, shaved-head man who called himself Joshua. Or maybe Jonathan. We don't know. Either way, it was not, not Jeremy. Jeremy. It was Jeremy, but he would not go by the name Jeremy. Nope. Uh, he was completely different. He actually acted like he had no idea who they were or who Fleetwood Mac was. And remember, Clifford Davis was had been his roadie for... Or uh, Clifford Davis had been his manager for like three years yeah. now, so I mean, this isn't like it was a strange. This is to four him. days later. What four days? A couple days later. Four yeah. days yeah, after he went much. missing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this all happened in four days. He shaved his head, changed his name, new clothes, and then he just changed his entire persona. There was a lot so of uh, ch- speculation about him being like brainwashed or something weird, but I mean, he's he is still involved with it today, so I don't. I just want to know what they did to him. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't. (laughs) Whatever it is, I don't like it. I know that. Uh, So Clifford and Phil tried to get him to leave, but he refused. And um, they actually even asked about his wife and kids, one of whom was an infant. He actually had two children at this time. And to this, he simply replied, Jesus will take care of them. God. I don't like that. That that was the end of Jeremy Spencer. That's all. They, they realized at that time <laughs> he was willing to leave his wife and kids to join this, and so they realized it was a lost yeah. cause. And so uh, they <clears throat> went back to the hotel and told the band that he wasn't coming back. Jeremy later said that he regretted leaving the band, but he joined Children of God under his own will. His wife and kids did move to the United States to join Jeremy. So, I mean, I guess in a way Jesus did really take care of them. Uh, by also ruining their lives, uh, Jeremy even created a band while he was in the group called Jeremy Spencer and the Children. Don't like that. Yeah, one thing he is I apparently. Think, st- what? I think that it was the Children of God. That's what my book said, but I didn't add it. Oh, like Jeremy Spencer and yeah, the Children Jeremy's, of God. Yep, that's oh, it. Weird. That's what my book. Uh, like that's what my book had. Yeah. 
like his close friends call him Jeremy Spencer and the children. Like they're allowed to get away with <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. But like if you're talking <laughs> they about know the God radio, parts, you like better say Jeremy the Spencer yeah, and the like children. That's, that's and the a given. That's a given. Yeah, exactly. You you should know that if you're in California. You should just Los Angeles, you should know. <laughs> uh um so apparently Jeremy Spencer is still associated and this is what I've read I'm not going to take ownership of this this statement allegedly he is still allegedly yes that's the that's the journalism word I need to learn allegedly Jeremy Spencer is still associated with the children of God now called Family International and continues to play music um, I found a couple articles on change.org and other places saying that he was a child molester allegedly in, Allegedly, and nobody should support him, uh, but do with that what you will. Uh, he put out an album, I think, in like last year. Like, uh, that's earliest he put it out, or latest he put it out is like 2011. Like, it's allegedly. pretty recent. That's the thing about children. That's of- not an allegedly thing. He did put out an album. <laughs> Sorry. I, I did that for comedic <laughs> relief. Sorry. That's the thing about Children of God. Like, I don't, since it's still together today and it was renamed, I don't really know what they've changed, but. That was a huge part of it back then. Rape. Like, yeah. Child rape. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you want to go look into, um, we aren't a true crime podcast. We're not going to act like we are. Um, there are hundreds of podcasts about that, but uh, it's pretty wild. Um, we'll get back to music because that's what we know. Yeah. So the band was upset that they had lost two people with Peter Green and now Jeremy Spencer in less than a year for pretty wild reasons i mean a bad lsd trip and um children of god that's two pretty unique reasons to lose someone but they needed another guitarist and in a pinch who else were they going to call but mr lsd himself peter green (laughs) mr lsd (laughs) lsd uh so he agreed to come over to the u.s and play in the band on two conditions one, they do not call him Peter Green, but instead they call him Peter Blue. Very clever. And then, two, they allow his friend and, I think, cousin to Clifford, uh, Clifford Davis, Nigel Watson, to come and play the congas in the band. <laughs> I will do it, but only if my friend can come. <laughs> I'm sure that the band was just like... I yeah sure fine like we won't mic him like it's fine he cannot do much but he can play the congos he can he can hit this (laughs) little little, he would enjoy uh, skin drum (laughs) oh yes yeah I'm sure that he wasn't mic'd I'm sure that nobody ever heard him the entire time he was on stage they were just like fucking fine just do anything you want I don't care just come (laughs) need a guitarist. (laughs) Uh, Peter didn't know any of their new stuff Nigel also didn't know any of their new stuff Didn't know any of their old stuff either I'm surprised I'm sure he he ad-libbed very well I'm I'm sure sure he did I'm sure the whole band was just like playing their blues stuff And then if you listen really closely to the live stuff It's just like I was looking for stuff Like from the 70s Couldn't find much before uh, Lindsay and Stevie So you know Like just just so off time and just <laughs> yep. so bad. I don't know. Nigel's probably a nice yeah, he's guy. Fine. Um, so they they 
they were on tour currently promoting their Kiln House album, and Peter didn't know any of that stuff, so they actually played all of their older stuff that Peter did know, and the crowds went wild over this. And this was in the United States, so it's kind of they were bringing that old sound to the U.S. This ended up being their best tour to date. And then while they were on tour, their next single, Dragonfly, came out and failed to even chart. It was done with only Danny, John, Mick, and Christine, and they knew that they needed something else. They decided that they were definitely a two-guitar band. So when the tour was over, Peter Blue went back to his labor job he was working when the band called him. Then he, they brought in a new guitarist by the name of Bob Welch. Robert Welch was born on August 31st, 1945 in L.A. He was an American boy. He grew up in the West Coast R&B scene and was a blues expert. After losing out to Sly and the Family for a CBS contract, he played for a few bands, finding the most success in the band Head West, not to be confused with the band Go West. I get over which, you. I know I, I know will. I will. I just want you guys to know I fixed that because it was you had it backwards. You had Go West as his band and Head West as the band that did sing. Oh no, Tony! (laughs) But I saved it for your embarrassment. Uh, they are they are that close. I'm That's the how close king they are. Of wishful thinking. And then I had never heard King song. of Wishful Thinking, so I listened to it and oh, it was pretty good. So good. But I never heard it before. It's a very classic one. <laughs> it's very wonder. good. That's that's we, uh, that's a song Austin and I used to oh belt in the car in high school. So, along yeah, with a couple of these song. tunes we're going to get into on later episodes. <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, so Head West made their way over to the UK. Hold up, hold up. I didn't make any fucking sense. I said East. I had an East. Oh, Austin, is that a geography joke? last name was perfect. And had East, you know, there had never been any reason. That's a pretty good song if you've never heard it. Austin graduated with an art degree. Oh, man. Synchronicities. Synchronicities everywhere. Hey, 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 hey. Austin, you have a better degree than I do. Okay. For now. For now. Don't let him Uh, invalidate you. (laughs) (laughs) So Head West was over in the UK, and then once they were over there, they broke up. So Bob was left stranded in a foreign country, and that's when he got the call to try out for Fleetwood Mac. He was a welcome addition and helped to shape the sound for their next album, which they started recording in June 1971. Bob brought in a poppier sound than they had done before, moving even further away from the blues sound that they were famous for, but growing tired of. The album, called Future Games, was released on September 3rd, 1971. The album art is of a solid yellow cover with a black and white image of two children, what looks to be a boy and a girl, standing in knee-deep water. The the image is like a 5 by 7 like kind of small. Boy and a girl standing in knee-deep water. Um, they're in their swim trunks. The girl is a child, and I think she's just wearing bottoms, which makes me think it might be a boy. I don't know. I'm not going to question it. Uh, the the foreground girl, person, probably the girl, is holding an inner tube and looking directly at the camera. Her face is slightly covered by a tree branch. And then above the image is Fleetwood Mac written in large letters, and then below is Future Games written in very small letters. This album actually did better in America than it did in the U.K., 
day. It charted number 91 in the United States and was certified gold. And it didn't even chart in the U- in the that's UK. That's crazy it's certified gold like that. Yeah, yeah. Insane. that's that's 500,000 <laughs> yeah. album or 500,000 copies sold is Yeah, yeah, so it did really really well in the United States, which is cool. The album sleeve of this album will be the first to feature the famous penguin the band would become known for. I love this so much. (laughs) So I I love the penguin as well. Yeah, so good. John lived near the London Zoo and oftentimes went in and uh, photographed the penguins there. I don't know if he photographed any other animals, but he really enjoyed photographing the penguins. He decided that he wanted to use one of his images of the penguins that he shot instead of a photo of himself for the insert. So the insert... In the internal sleeve shows all the members. It shows, you know, uh, it shows Mick and uh, Bob and, you know, Christine. And then it just shows a penguin. <laughs> That's the fourth member. Pretty cool. Um, <laughs> so this tour would be, oh, no, uh, D- Danny's in there as well. My mistake. This tour that they would go on to support this album would be the first signs of trouble for John and Christine who are trying to lead a normal marriage while also trying to be co-workers and be pent up in hotels and on the road at the same time, just like we said a little bit earlier. John was also drinking a lot during this time. Like a as lot, was Dan- lot. Like he Ethan just cracking his can. Yep, imagine hearing that 50 times a day. That may be a little facetious. I don't yeah, know. Who, who can but, know? Uh, yeah, he, he really enjoyed drinking somebody else who really enjoyed drinking was Danny who seemed to be pulling away from the band he was missing rehearsals and keeping to himself more Bob seemed concerned with this but the rest of the band didn't really worry about it and so with that lack of concern they wrapped up the tour and jumped back into the studio they recorded this next album between January and February 1972 that seems like I don't. it's crazy how fast they put out albums oh, yeah. like how fast yeah. they recorded like, compared like, to now yeah. They did not stop yeah. working. If they weren't touring, they were recording. You yeah. Know I mean, yeah, me of? we are. Waylon Jennings. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Same Waylon way. Jennings. Yeah, yeah. No, this is like, they are five years into uh, their band, and they have, uh, I think this is their fifth album that they're working on right now. Don't quote me. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. But, like, this, they are working really yeah. hard. I mean, it's an average of an album a month. They're go-getting They it. actually record. Yeah, this this album was uh, released in April 1972, just seven months after Future Games' album. So, like we said, very quick turnaround from one album to the next. The album art showed a foggy picture of some leafless trees. So, like, up front you have more, like, in-focus trees, and then it gets kind of out of focus and more foggy as it goes. It's a very simple album. The trees don't have any leaves. Yeah, it's very, very white and kind of bland. Uh, it's it's actually, the best way I could describe it is it's quiet. It's a very muted album cover. Yes, um, foggy. The photo for the album was taken by John McVie, who apparently fancied himself as a photographer taking pictures of leafless trees and, and penguins. penguins <laughs> specifically. <laughs> Everyone's got their niche, I suppose. I'm um, really good at leaves, and I'm pretty good at penguins. <laughs> everyone everyone needs two things, got, and he found things. them. Penguins, trees, he, fog. You got, right. your, you got your niche. 
That's right. Yep, he figured it out. Um, this album didn't do super well in Europe, but it actually reached number 70 in the U.S., uh, higher than Future Games, and went on to go platinum, which is selling a million copies. They continued to gain popularity stateside, and they were leaning into where their new audience was. But once again, when things were going well, life was right there with its steel-toed boots to kick them square in the nuts. <sighs> They were touring through Canada in August 1972. Danny was struggling to keep up with the touring and recording, which may have partially been brought on by his heavy drinking and drug use. He was doing LSD and mescaline, which is a lot like LSD, gives you the same um, hallucinogenic effects and things like that. If you remember from the last episode, I know nothing about drugs. I want to say a special shout out to Wikipedia for telling me that. I'll tell you anything you need to know. And if you don't know anything about mescaline, it's actually found in uh, cactus plants such as peyote, which is uh, a Native American drug. They use it a lot throughout their history of being native in America. And uh, San Pedro <laughs> cactus, which you can buy on Amazon. Fun fact. You can buy the cactus on Amazon? Oh, yeah. I, I can't incriminate myself, but yes. <laughs> You can make a, you can make you a. You could shitty, make a tea. Uh, Breaking Bad knockoff. You, can make, you a could tea. make a tea. I'm not going <laughs> to say you can of... make a tea, but you can make a tea. Huh. huh. Interesting. Let's huh. let's keep going, please. Are you having a hard time keeping up with everything? Bob, who? How long was Peter in the band? Listen, we get it. This thing is like a revolving door of members. But you know what might help you focus a little more? Well, for one, stop doing your job. Those expense forms will be there when the episode is over. Please pay attention to us. But also, Red Dawn, of course. They have products for every situation. The Red Dawn liquid will give you the wake-up call you need, and their sleepwalker will declutter your mind and heighten your mood. Need to nail a big interview or uh, you're going to get into a big fight with your girlfriend over not doing the dishes again? Those dishes need to be done, Daniel! God dang it! Sleepwalker will give you the edge you need to stay awake all night. They come in in capsules or a delicious shot as well. You can find them at your local Casey's, Love's, Racetrack, Murphy USA, as well as many other retailers. To find a retailer near you, you can go to reddawnenergy.com and use the store locator page. You can also find them on social media with the handle Red Dawn Energy. Tell them we sent you. Call us a bad name on their page. They would love that. Red Dawn inspire, innovate, invigorate. Also, a quick shout out to Damian Marshall of North Carolina for getting the band right. We thought we had outsmarted you all with our hex code, but God, God damn it, we were wrong. Damian, nice work, man. You got it. Your Red Dawn prize is in the mail. <sighs> so Danny was in an overall shitty mood and being intentionally confrontational and an overall little bitch. He and the rest of the band, minus Mick, weren't even speaking. A little side note, Mick was like the calm presence through all of these people leaving and coming and going. He had always kept the band on track when they lost and gained members, and he continued to do that here. I think my so book Danny, called him the guiding light of Fleetwood Mac. Yes. He, I think he said, I think somebody my book may have said he was the stable presence. Yeah. Uh, it's just like Mick just knew what yep, needed to be done, which together. is very cool. Uh, so Danny and Bob's relationship, Bob Welch's relationship, was especially toxic. They would always bicker and attack each other verbally. On this night, however, it would go even further than that. 
they were fighting backstage before a show. So they were like in the wings of the stage uh, about the tuning of their guitars. And this escalated to Danny headbutting and punching the concrete wall, then going and grabbing his prized Gibson Les Paul and smashing it and using it to smash their dress room. Rational, <laughs> rational man. Sounds like drugs. It's fine. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, yeah it's fine. Uh, all within the realm of what you should do. Uh, yes. He then refused to go on stage, so he didn't play with them. Uh, but he did go to the mixing booth and watch them and then would heckle them from the booth while they were playing. <laughs> what an asshole. They struggled. God, such so a dickhead. Stu- yeah, what He's a such dish. a dickhead. <laughs> they, the band struggled to play as they were missing a member. He continued to heckle them through their entire set and then even on the way back to the hotel. He just, like, lost it entirely and did not relent. I can't believe that they let him ride back That is them. also like, shocking. Could you imagine- like Just like every, the guy sitting in the back of the van, he's like, "Oh yeah, you fucking guys you sound like shit. So so shitty." Yeah, I would be like, like you "Just find your own way home. See ya." Yeah, everyone is just, just sitting walk, there in asshole. silence. The radios turned off, and like they're all just sitting there through string muttering, teeth, like yeah, <laughs> white knuckling. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> one bit I have is that he specifically singled out Mick who was the one person that was talking to him at this time. Like, the one person that was willing to talk to this drunk asshole, he singled out during yep, the show. Yeah, about That's right. And behavior. I think... I that. I think... <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to that. He's just, so he's just un- really trying to get himself out. relatable for Austin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yes, um, I think that him attacking Mick was probably the straw that broke the camel's back because once they got back to the hotel, the whole band, minus Danny, got together and collectively decided it was time for Danny to go. And that would make Danny the only person so far that had actually been fired from the band. And I, does anyone else get fired after? Is he? The- uh, I don't want to tease anything, but Dave Walker. Okay, does. well I'll just <sighs> say. I'll just yeah, say well he he had a real lackluster, you know. Tenure after it, anyway. So fucking yeah, we can just keep that. Yeah. I guess that's fine. That's informative. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, uh, so Mick walked into his room, grabbed him by the testes, told him he was fired, and then just that was the end of Danny. He really grabbed him by the uh, nuts, Tony. He didn't grab him by the nuts. <laughs> oh. I was trying to play but it up. Make it. Tony was being uh, uh, metaphorical, but in the press, it was actually announced that he had quit to per- pursue. A solo career. No one can see your quotes. I'm not sure if you guys could hear the air quotes that Ethan was throwing up there. They're there. He was throwing them up. Yep. Yeah. Um, that's a good way to try and save face, but Danny <coughs> Kerwan was fired. So Danny continued to play and had some success as a guitarist after Fleetwood Mac. He released some solo albums until he left the musical industry in 1979. He died in 2018 from complications from pneumonia. But back in 1972, they were now without a guitarist, back to John McVie, Mick Fleetwood, Christine McVie, and Bob Welch. The band decided that they needed a standalone vocalist and needed another guitarist. And we will get to who those people are on the next episode of On In Five. They are going to find a package deal in a couple of ways. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, so, 
that is where we are going to leave it for this episode. Uh, we will get into um, the next people who join and the permanent mix of Fleetwood Mac and Rumors and Beyond on the next episodes of On and Five. But for right now, if you want to check us out on social media, you can find us on everything Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at We're On In Five. That is W E R E On In Five. Uh, go like us you know uh, whatever the the correct subscribe terminology is, thing, is for, I think. subscribe yep hit, do hit everything that, that, that shift two to. button shift two i don't know what that even that's tab i don't oh cool that's an okay at sign sorry oh cool oh yeah shift oh two. yeah hit yeah, the yeah, shift yeah. button along with okay two. no no that makes a lot more yeah. sense now um yeah, please go like us everywhere. Uh, we we post things daily, like we remind you of stuff. We're trying to get better at social media and just you know putting things out that are kind of interesting, putting out fun facts and things like that. So please go check us out there. We also have a website where you can uh, find us on all the platforms that you're listening to this. It doesn't really benefit you if you are listening to this because you've obviously found the platform. But you can go check us out on our website. That is we'reonin5.com. We also have a Patreon if you want to do anything with that. We would love if you donated to us. If you don't want to, that's totally fine. Uh, We do love money and that helps us do this more we're trying to get uh austin out Incentive. of his job at wells fargo <laughs> i don't know if we should be asking so that for he... money yet hey hey Eth- just, just austin, shut up. work at hy-vee <laughs> okay yeah, yeah no, ethan works do at hy and austin works at wells fargo so please give us money so that they don't have to work there anymore we want to do the podcast full-time <laughs> eventually awesome. you know it'd be super fun it'd be nice um, We'd love your money. But we also love you listening to us. So thank you for that very much. Um, also, please go rate and review us on iTunes and stuff like that. That genuinely does help us. That gets us more. The, the higher rated and the more reviewed we are, the more people see it. The more people see it, you know, the faster this thing can grow. And so we would genuinely appreciate it if you rated and review us. We'd really appreciate it if you gave us five stars. But that's up to you. We want a genuine uh, rate and review over just a, a generic one. So if you want to check me out, Anton, on anything, I am Anton is on in five. A-N-T-O-N. I am an overweight white guy, so that's a funny name for me. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram there. If you want to go check out Ethan on Twitter or Instagram. I'm pretty basic. I'm Ethan Bonin, B-O-N-I-N, on Twitter. And on Instagram, I am Bones for Bonin, B-O-N-I-N, on Twitter. Instagram. Fuck me. And then Austin. <laughs> oh, are you good with that? Are you comfortable comfort, with comfort, that? It's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'll go fuck myself. It's fine. Okay, perfect. And then if you want to go check out Austin anywhere, Austin Money Tom. I'm on Twitter as T-H-O-M-A-A-A-F. I'm on in- three yeah. F's. No, three A's. Don't tell him that. Damn Don't it. do that. I've been drinking. Yeah, that's fine. All right. Uh, I'm on Instagram as Austin underscore Thomas. That's T-H-O-M-A-S with an O-9. And then, um, yeah, that's where I'm at. Austin, <sighs> correct me if I'm wrong here now, but you do like, you are you a singer? Is that? No, I'm am not. I... Um, I'm a hack, okay. but I am in a band. And <laughs> Thank you. I front it. And um, we are called The Edicule. That is T-H-E okay. space E-D-I-C-U-L-E. 
We filmed a music video recently, so that should hopefully be coming out within like a month or so. Uh, Austin showed us uh, some screenshots, or he shared some screenshots so on his social media. It looks very, very, it's very cool. professional. I would highly so recommend cool. seeing it. It's yeah. very good, Austin. Thank you. We love Thank you. you. And then uh, we're just writing, and so hopefully we'll be recording and releasing more stuff soon. But they do have a two-song EP. You can find that on iTunes and Spotify. Um, the I, summer yeah, their, their EP, stuff is, like everywhere. Yeah, their stuff is very, very good. Like it's, it's. I'm not just saying that as a friend. I would tell Austin. We've been friends long enough. I would tell Austin and you guys if, if his stuff. Sucks. Oh, and he has. Also, not. don't Austin, worry. He has. Say, Austin, <laughs> I would tell you if it sucks as well. You know that. Ethan yep. definitely yeah, has. But it's. Yeah, <laughs> Ethan's say, much more blunt than good. anyone I know. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, yes, please go check out the Edit Cool. Their stuff is genuinely good. I'm sure that you will enjoy it. If you enjoy us, I think that you would like that. It is it is metal, but you'll you'll like it. It's heavy. Um, yeah, it's very heavy. So the other thing that we're doing on this show is we really want to promote beers that we enjoy drinking yes. in the hopes that maybe uh, someone will send us a beer that they're trying out, that they're not really sure how it's going to do, and we can tell you guys that their stuff is super good. So send us free beer, please. The beer that I am drinking on this episode is uh, Big Grove Brewery's Easy Eddie. It's a hazy IPA. Uh, Big Grove Brewery is out of Iowa City, Iowa. I'm trying to stick with a lot of Iowa beers because they're easily accessible and they're going to be the most likely to hear me. So uh, Easy Eddie is a um, it's a pineapple mango beer, and it's really not super bitter at all. It's pretty easy drinking. It's um, I've had a couple of them. I'm not feeling much of a buzz. It's it's just a good one to have in your hand uh, as you get through your day. Uh, maybe start at, in the evening. I wouldn't recommend starting at like lunchtime, but. It's very good. Um, if you can go check out Big Grow Brewery anywhere in Iowa, I would recommend them 100%. Uh, I'm drinking. I, oh, you're last. No, Austin's you're last. going Biatch. first. Austin's going first. I want I want to have yours be a surprise. <laughs> Do it. I am drinking Lining Kugel's uh, Canoe Paddle Kolsch, which is a Kolsch. Uh, super easy drinking and very, very tasty. I really don't... Lining Kugels out of Wisconsin, I believe, right? Yeah. How about that? And then, um, uh, yeah, Lining Kugels is really good. There's some in Shandy's. Awesome. We gave Ethan shit about it on, uh, one of the last episodes, but it's honestly super good. good. It's so Uh, good. Yeah. Uh, and then Ethan, this is genuine. Ethan has been keeping a a secret about what he's drinking. So when he tells you guys what he's drinking, he's also telling us. Would not tell us and is drinking with two hands to make sure we don't see Literally coning his beer so that we can't see it. Let's start with how many beers I've drank. Uh, what am I? I'm, I'm eight deep. I'm eight deep into this beer. And Before the episode, we said, Ethan, don't drink too much so that uh, you're not too drunk. And then he said, I'll be fine. And then he's like, oh, Steve. <laughs> so what? Okay. We cannot is see. That what you're what is that a natter That's a natty fucking seltzer. <laughs> Fuck you, man. Natty seltzer. Oh That's a natty <laughs> seltzer with uh, the Aloha uh. beaches, you know, uh, the mango and peach. You know, you got to go. I don't even want to hear it. <laughs> That's what I did. Hey man, if That's I, I tell you what, you. if Natural Light sends you free beer, I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll you got to respect yeah, the game, yeah, man. That's awesome. That'd be if great. That happens. Yeah. 
That's right. That's what I did. I did. I did Natty Light, the uh, Aloha Beaches. God damn and it! It's got the mango and peach flavor. I drank so many, and I'm fucked up. That was worth the wait, I suppose. Oh, it's everything I dreamed for it to be. Uh, Ethan's drinking his nad natural light, man. Natty, you know, I almost went with a white claw, so you should really, oh you know, you should be a little appreciative. Oh, you made a good, you made Regardless, a choice. Good job, Ethan. Way to hold that through this entire episode and this entire day. It was rough. I'm proud of you. Oh, man. Uh, with that, with Ethan drinking his seltzer water beer <laughs> and the rest of us drinking good just stuff. Spit it everywhere. Jesus! Oh God, it's a massacre. <laughs> Fuck, we gotta, we gotta call it. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you in two weeks. You guys have a fantastic week. Um, can't wait, can't we'll wait to talk see to you, you next good. episode. <laughs> Got a black magic woman. Got a black magic woman. Yes, I got a black magic woman. See, I fucking know the song. I just got confused. That she's a black magic woman and she's trying to make a